At Rockland Trust, each relationship matters, and we know that your relationship with money may be complicated and may need some extra love and attention. But where do you start? I'm Julie Beckham, the Financial Education Officer at Rockland Trust, and this is the No Shame in This Money Game podcast. What you should have done and could have done, didn't know and should have known, doesn't matter anymore. There's no use spending one more minute blaming or shaming yourself. Because really, with everything going on in the world right now, you don't have time to get down on yourself. And you don't deserve it. We're all in this together, starting now. And like I said, there's no shame in this money game. Well, welcome to the No Shame in This Money Game podcast, where we're talking about love and money. Oh, this is such a hard topic, and I am so grateful to have Melissa Wish and Erica Ford here from Four Winds Advisors to help us kind of sift through this really complicated topic about money. Welcome. Hi. How are you? Thank you so much. Yeah, this is so exciting to have two of you on today. So we have so many questions. We each enter into a relationship and potentially a marriage with all these high hopes and all these great expectations, yet 50% of marriages end in divorce, and we don't prepare for that. If I knew I was going into my car and 50% of the time I might get into a car accident, I would probably wear a seatbelt, maybe a helmet, or maybe not even go into my car. Yet we enter these relationships with these really high odds and don't get the information, don't have the tough conversations that we need to have. So I wanted to talk to you two with all of your experience. What are these conversations that we need to have before entering into these relationships? You know, it's funny. My mother did this area of law, too, and she always felt that they should make it much easier to get divorced and much harder to get married. In other words, there should be like the financial statement that you have to do when you get divorced. You should have to do that before you get married so that everybody's aware of what each other's assets and debts are and things like that so that you can go into it with a clean slate financially and and figure out a plan going in. It's just so hard to talk about money when everybody is getting married and feeling backy, chosen, and excited, right? And our culture definitely makes marriage a fairy tale. You know, when you're getting ready to get married, there's this whole bride, princess, happily ever after vibe going on and planning all the cake and who's going to come to your reception. And it's hard to have that conversation that you just don't want to think about. There's all this planning for the wedding, but not a lot of planning for the marriage. And Erica, if you could, if this were a fairy tale and you could wave a magic wand and have a, a newly engaged couple have a conversation about money and their relationship, what would that conversation entail? I look at things in such a practical manner, but I definitely think their goal to be set for If someone, it's important to them that, that they stay home full-time or part-time to be a caregiver to the child, right? That needs to be set forth so that there's not someone coming later going, hey, you need to go get a job. You need to get that type of thing. It's like, no, we're going to live within this means because we decided it was important that one of us was at least home part-time. Those are things that can come up later. If both people, their careers are important to them, 
how are they going to divide that time? What if someone moves, right? What if someone gets a job and it's their dream job and they want to, they have to move to England? These are all things, you know, to sort of set guidelines and boundaries about to begin with. But it's hard to do when you, right, are in that love moment and you just think you're going to support each other and be happy if you live in a box together because you're so excited to get married. And then later on, reality kicks in. So I think also, where are they living? Are they living near family? Do they have support? Because if you want a great career, it's really hard to do without any support. So if you're taking your spouse and encouraging them to move 3,000 miles away from their family or any any family at all, and you're going to all be go-getters with your careers, well, you're going to be showing out a lot of money for nanny. So things like that, again, just things you don't want to think about at the time. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds to me, Erica, like you're describing, you know, setting expectations <laughs> going forward into the marriage. And, you know, it's funny, that idea that my mother had back when, which, by the way, she was the only woman attorney in the uh, entire county in Pennsylvania practicing law back in the day in the 60s. So she was she was a pioneer in all sorts of ways. But this idea she had, instead of just doing this pre-Cana stuff of having people sit down and do these expectations, exercises and things in a marriage, <laughs> I, you know, this may be self-defeating for the business we're in, but I bet, I bet you'd find a lot less people, maybe not a lot less, but a significant portion of people would decide, you know what? Maybe we should wait on this marriage because there's things that they didn't even consider going into it. And I think it would be a good reality check for a lot of people because they never get to that level of conversation. I think it would be interesting, too, if people could even just have a little tour about how do they respond to money. Because here's the irony of this whole conversation. We're talking about the fairy tale and the emotion and falling in love. And then we're talking about the money like it's a cold, hard thing. But the emotion around money that people have and the way they react to conversations about it, that can kill a marriage really fast. If you have someone who wants to talk about their finances and the other one clams up because they're uncomfortable talking about money or somebody who had you know issues in their family growing up about money and the minute you bring it up, someone blows as a temper tantrum. I mean, just learning how do people talk about money? Are you a fit as a couple to even be able to have money conversations in your marriage? Because you're going to have to. And if you can't even talk about it without someone going off the rails or shutting themselves off in the basement, it's not going to work. Exactly. And sometimes there's sometimes there's a money imbalance in the marriage as well, where one partner is out earning the other considerably and the other partner feels a little bit in the dark on money. And one of my clients actually did something brilliant. I thought they were already married and they started to have arguments about money. So they went to a financial planner who was also acting as a mediator between the two of them. And she came up with a plan for them to stick to. Just because money is the number one topic married couples fight about doesn't mean you have to succumb to the statistics. There are financial advisors who work with the whole couple, treat both as equals, and even financial counselors and therapists. We all come into relationships with baked-in limiting beliefs about money, and sometimes those beliefs or baggage needs to be unpacked in order to have a healthy conversation with your partner about money. As scary as that is, it's much scarier to think your relationship could suffer or even end over conflicts about money. 
with kind of quote allowances for each of them because you take a pool of money put it into the household bills and then each of the you know set a dollar amount that's all your own to spend so i think that was helpful in midstream well then when they started running into difficulties to go to a financial advisor like that together to even the playing field as well some folks are choosing not to get married. They're choosing to get a house, to maybe even start a family without getting married. What are the legal considerations that that one needs to consider when they're you're in love and you're entering this stage of your relationship where you want to take it to the next level and maybe not get married, but you're making major purchases? This is an interesting one because people think they're saving themselves a lot of aggravation if they just move in together and buy property together and get a dog and act like a household and all that stuff, and then something goes wrong and they split up. And if there's an argument about what they're dividing up, you cannot have the simpler, relatively simpler remedy of filing for divorce because there's a presumption pretty much of a 50-50 division of things. What you have to do is you have to file a complaint in equity and proceed on a contract basis. And you're looking at terms like unjust enrichment and constructive trust. And these complaints on equity are about three or four pages long. And you have to come up with verifiable contributions for each of you to the assets that you have accrued together. You have to prove everything financially you put into it. There's no presumption of a partnership and divide things 50-50 as in divorce, pretty much. A complaint in equity is filed when there is no legal remedy to answer a situation that may arise between two or more litigants, in this case, between a couple. It's legal, lengthy, and after looking up how to write and file one, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. As Melissa has been saying during this episode, it might be worth having these tough conversations before they become expensive legal complaints. So people people are actually causing themselves more grief in doing it this way, I think. And there's a huge trend with this. I mean, my son is 26, and I know a couple of his friends have, with their girlfriends have bought property together. I'm like, oh, guys, <laughs> I'm not too sure this is the way to go, but it seems to be a trend, as you were saying. So I would caution people about doing it that way. And if, if they do do it that way, I would certainly tell them going in, they need to, it's not very romantic, but they need to keep a tally basically of who's contributed what and keep a very clear bank account. Okay, keep your money separate, keep the house. This would be especially a great place to have a household account because then any money that you accrued during that time together in your personal account would remain yours. It would make it a lot easier at the end. Household accounts, tracking money, none of this sounds very romantic, but neither is divorce. So maybe there's a way to figure out what works for you and your partner. Belinda Rosenblum, money strategist and former guest of the No Shame in This Money Game podcast's Own Your Money episode, suggests money dates, a scheduled time to periodically discuss finances so you can figure out what works and what doesn't work for you. Try it. Speaking of unromantic subjects, prenuptial agreements. Do people still use these? How do you know if you should have one? And how do you bring this up with your partner? If you have to have a contract to get out of your marriage, you might as well have a contract going in your marriage. I think it also depends on the people's assets. Obviously, if you're going into a marriage and neither of you have anything, I mean, it's probably a little harder for them to figure out. Of course, going into it, if they're all in a romantic state, they just want to share everything. Another thing that I think people need to talk about, which could be big later, is inheritances comes up a lot, you know, that you're married and then all of a sudden you get an inheritance from an aunt or you get a windfall from your parents. And is that going to be considered shared property? 
So that's another thing that I think people should look at in, when they're getting married or are already married. Right. Yeah. And what I would contribute also on the prenuptial idea, actually, you can do a prenuptial or a postnuptial. You can do one after you're already married. And that actually has saved a few marriages because it takes the financial pressure off at that time. But the thing about both of those is Massachusetts has what they call a second look doctrine, where they look at the instrument at the time it was done and then at the time it's looking to be implemented to see if it's still fair. Like, say, somebody brings in a ton of assets into the marriage. And during the marriage, they don't really accrue a lot together because I don't know what's happened. Some, but in any event, what would happen there is the court would not leave somebody completely destitute with nothing coming out of that marriage. So the person who had, had the prenup that thought they were protecting 100% of those assets might have a surprise at the end of the day when they might not end up with 100% of those assets with that second look doctrine piece of things. And the inheritance piece that Erica brought up, which is a really good point, because this comes up a lot and it's a very emotional piece of things for people is, you know, the Massachusetts basically, if it's intertwined in the marriage, basically, let's say you get an inheritance and you start to spend it in your marriage on vacations or mortgage payments or things like that, then it's interwoven in the fabric of the marriage, as they say, and it's more likely to be dividable during a divorce proceeding. I've seen judges say like, okay, a spouse gets 25% of the inheritance. And that's even when a person has gotten an inheritance at the very end, tail end of the marriage. So people need to be aware that those inheritances may be susceptible to some kind of division, but they're smart if they keep them in a separate account so that they can show that they have not expended any of these monies in the marital endeavor at all. That helps a lot. So there are so many technical aspects. And again, these aren't romantic conversations. They aren't things that we want to talk about. Can you talk more about the post-nuptial agreement? Sure. I've actually had a few of those happen where people are getting into major disagreements. They think the marriage is not going to work, but they think that if, okay, if if we settle the financial piece of this now, if in the event of a divorce, this is what you will get and this is what I will get. And then they can kind of go about their business out of fear of that financial piece is removed and kind of concentrate more on the relationship itself. And it's actually been successful in saving some marriages. On the other hand, sometimes it isn't. And so then they implement the terms in the postnuptial. Frankly, it usually comes up when somebody's kind of messed up in the marriage, like say somebody's cheated too. And the other spouse is like, well, I'll do anything to save the situation. What do you need from me? Well, I need to feel financially secure because I'm not emotionally secure right now. So if I can feel financially secure, that would help. So that's kind of how they parlay that into this postnuptial idea. Yeah, and also in post-nup debt, I've seen marriages where one of them is just, you know, sitting online compulsively spending on credit cards, racking up all this debt, and it's like a problem they have. Or you could have a post-nup that in the event of divorce, once the spouse who did not accrue it is not responsible for paying it. And then that could take an emotional load off that might save the marriage. Wow. Yeah, I mean... Talk about the emotional load when you have any trouble in your relationship, whether or not you're thinking about the future of your relationship and whether it's viable or not, but the shame that you feel when you've invested time, emotion, everything into a relationship and it's not working. How do you address the shame that that comes into your offices when it comes to 
even thinking about divorce? Well, that's where Four Winds Advisors comes in <laughs> with the people that come are contemplating a divorce but aren't sure which way they want to go. Um, they can come see Eric and myself and sit down with us for a consult and we'll lay out everything for them in the different approaches to divorce. As you kind of alluded at the beginning, there's more than one way to go about this. You know, you can file for divorce in an adversarial manner, but you can also do divorce mediation work, which we also do under Mediation Matters. And then you can also get two like-minded attorneys who can try and work things out for the parties. We take that approach with people also. There's different ways to go about it, but they, they need more information because, frankly, they, I think people get what I call barstool advice from well-meaning people um, that aren't giving them the straight story. Or they have a very manipulative spouse who's trying to manipulate them into a fearful place where they need feel like, oh, my God, I can never leave this marriage kind of thing. But it's funny when we sit with people, they come out on the other side feeling very empowered is the word a lot of them use, because now they're in a position of having real knowledge and they feel like they can make a more intelligent choice for themselves. Yeah, and we try to take away the shame pretty quickly. I mean, it's 2020 nationwide. The divorce rate is 60 percent. And there's really no shame in it. And there's not a badge that you get because you suffer the longest or because you tolerate being mistreated the longest. Right. And like you said earlier, Erica, we have this fairy tale image of marriage and what it is and what it should be and the happily ever after. And that's where that initial shame, I think, comes in. And I've found that a lot of folks that I've talked to have been told that they can't afford a divorce. Can you speak to that and why someone would be told that? I mean, it is a fact, especially around here, that it's so expensive for, for real estate now or even to get an apartment. So if you're splitting two households, yeah, are, are you, can you afford two mortgages? Can you afford a mortgage in an apartment? That is the reality that people look at. We have people moving in with friends or family because they don't have the funds at that point. So I understand that aspect of not being able to afford it. And then I think people look at splitting you know, you have your 401ks and you're going off in the sunset and your retirement going on cruises together with this money. Now you each have half of that amount of money. So I think that's kind of the functional aspect people might be looking at. And then also attorney's fees, right? You know, they think it's going to be the $80,000 divorce, whereas as Melissa has said, you can mediate, which is much more affordable. If you can't stand to be in the room together and mediate, you could even have your hire each an attorney who would speak to each other and try to work out the divorce for you instead of a prolonged court case. I should mention there's one trend I've seen. I've been doing this over 30 years. And a trend I've seen is that people get stuck living together while divorcing because neither one of them can afford to move out. And when I first started doing this, things are going badly. Somebody gets an apartment and moves out when things weren't so expensive. But now they have to go through this process under the same roof. I always tell people I haven't lost anybody yet. You will get through the process. It's a bit of a roller coaster ride, but you will get to the end of the ride intact. And speaking of doing this in an affordable uh, way, it's mediation that united the two of you to come together to form Four Winds Advisors. Am I correct? Yes, that's what we initially met about. And then <laughs> Erica shared a story with me that led to the train of thought I'd been kind of having in the back of my mind about this business model. And we kind of looked at each other and was like, you know what? I think we need to put that business together. And we did. 
So here we are. But mediation, yeah, mediation matters is an adjunct to the practice that I started probably probably 17, 18 years ago now. Um, and I adore mediation as a way to get people through this process because it saves so much wear and tear on them emotionally, financially, and in every aspect. Because a lot of times they have children that they can still have to either parent together or, you know, it show up at family events together. And at least if they can save some kind of cordiality through that process, it goes a long way for their children, especially. Right. And we're seeing so many more blended families and divorces that work out and, and have very untraditional family members showing up at birthdays, at holidays, and to be able to save those relationships without a lengthy court trial or a lot of animosity can be priceless. Exactly. It's huge. Uh, People can't underestimate that. And the cost savings, though, too, are astronomical compared to a protracted divorce piece. Now, some people, you just can't avoid it because one of the parties or the other is completely unreasonable or completely untrustworthy that they divorce mediation is a voluntary process. So you have to have some level of trust left still that they're going to do the right thing as far as presenting documents and that they're on the level as far as the finances are concerned. But if you still have some basis of that going on, then you're good candidates for mediation. And it also is a good way to level the playing field. If somebody coming into the negotiations feels like they're in the dark about the finances, because we ensure that everybody's cards are on the table and we know what the court will accept. We kind of tell them, look, you've got this little box that you can work within that terms that the court will accept. And you can get very creative inside that box and do something the court might not order that would suit your purposes much better, especially when it comes to parenting plans and things like that. So it's advisable in my view. If anybody can do it, I'd, I'd highly recommend people go the mediation route. Well, definitely. I mean, so you're waving your magic wands. Erica, and suggesting that these expectations be talked about. And if you were to wave your magic wand, Melissa, everyone would sit down kind of with an Excel spreadsheet and a contract. And both of them are very practical. Yet the expectation in our culture is that you do well in school, you go to college, you get married, you have children. Right. You're saying culturally marriage seems to be a goal But it's also practical consideration for the futuring of our race. I mean, you know, people couple up to have children and that kind of thing. So that idea is ingrained in us beyond societally. It's it's a survival instinct as well. Even though this is a tough topic, and again, part of this podcast is to demystify some of these financial topics, but also take the shame out of the ones that are really, really hard to have. And I can't think of a topic that can elicit more emotion than love and money. Because again, like we've talked about, when you're in that haze of of love and dreams and building your future with someone, it's hard to sit down and be practical. So we're going to take a a little spin at my spinning wheel here, and as because there is a, a gaming aspect of the No Shame in This Money Game podcast, I'm going to spin my wheel, and this is the first time I've had two guests, so each of you will have a crack at this question. Okay, we'll start with you, Erica. If you could spend one week in another profession, what would it be and why? I would work in the giraffe area of the zoo, taking care of the giraffes. 
<laughs> that is very <laughs> specific. Easy, easy question. I love giraffes and I got the opportunity to feed giraffes in Santa Barbara and also in Florida. And being that close to them, I just put me in such a happy mood for probably a week. I was on a high and I realized that if I could just hang out and do they call him a giraffe handler? I don't know what giraffe keepers are called exactly, but I would love to take care of them and study them and hang out with them. Well, I love it. That's very specific and very calming. They're very elegant, but goofy at the same time. There's something so funny about giraffes, right? I mean, they make no sense. And <laughs> and also they're just so peaceful and they just want to eat their leaves and be left alone and don't want to hurt anybody. <laughs> I think that might be might couple well with your current career. Maybe you could do that as a side hustle. <laughs> <laughs> the calming factors might benefit you in, in any other part of your job. What about you, Melissa? I would love to be a dolphin trainer. And I don't know why that's appealed to me for years, um, but I think what I love about dolphins is they're playful, but they're also very intelligent and bring emotions to the table and all those wonderful characteristics of connection that you look for, but they don't bring a lot of the, any of the human baggage that comes with it. <laughs> and so I think that's why dolphins appeal to me. And they also are very calming as far as that goes. And working with those type of animals, I think would be calming for me. So yeah, I think that, that that's what I would like to do. I think it is very interesting that the two of you who have to deal with people probably at their worst at times would like a little stint working with animals. <laughs> and I don't, I don't blame you at all. I think that that would be great. Uh, what a great week that would be. And then I do ask all of my guests, since Rockland Trust is the bank where each relationship matters, what is one word that can describe your relationship with money? Melissa, we'll go with you first. Uh, my word is adversarial. Wow. Okay, say more about that. Well, I think that's what popped into my head when I considered that question. I think because it's kind of a love-hate relationship with money, because either you you never have enough of it, or you need to try to figure out where you're going to earn it. I mean, being self-employed, especially, it's like you can't count on anything coming in steadily, so you're always kind of at odds with money because of that. So I think that's why it came to mind for me. All right, and what about you, Erica? tiresome. I, I find it tiresome. It's just, it, it's woven into almost everything. I mean, the best things in life are free, right? I mean, just to sit outside and look at the birds, but anything else you're going to do, taking your kids out to do something often can cost money, even if it's just the fee of parking there, planning for your life, eating your food every day, getting the clothes. It's, it's always there. Right. Again, just those moments of freedom when you just can look at nature or something where they don't know about money. It's very relaxing. <laughs> Definitely. Being with those giraffes and dolphins yeah. and not having yep. to think about a currency or a this for that or anything. It's true. It's complicated. And I think that's part of what being in love is is like. It's being with the animals and looking at the sky and hearing the birds and not having to deal with that. But as, as we've discovered in this conversation and as you both have discovered in your line of work, talking about money as adversarial as it 
sometimes may be and as tiresome as it sometimes may be is a necessary conversation to have in order to maintain a healthy relationship. So thank you for helping us kind of navigate these tough waters and and really helping other couples out there have these these conversations that are so necessary and are much easier to have even when you're in love and don't want to talk about them than they are on the back end. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you so much, Erica. Thank you so much. Yes, it was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the No Shame in This Money Game podcast brought to you by Rockland Trust, member FDIC. My name is Julie Beckham, and yes, I do take requests. So be sure to email your personal finance questions and curiosities to me, your host and your educator, at julie.beckham at rocklandtrust.com.